this particular conversion on this journey that, that he was having is quite a significant one. And we're going to talk about uh, the three days uh, in which he was blinded. And so in Acts chapter 9, starting from verse 1, we'll read the first nine verses. Now Saul, if you remember our reading, he was persecuting the church. Okay? And so still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This account of Saul uh, with Jesus on this road and the subsequent three days of blindness is quite a spectacular one. Um, I don't know if you've ever been blinded. Uh, whether you had LASIK surgery and you were blinded for 30 seconds, or uh, for whatever reason, if you felt disoriented, our, our sight is, it brings balance to our lives. It helps us to orient every bit of information that we hear, that we can feel. It is sight that really brings everything into a cohesive picture. And Saul, on this particular day, Hearing this voice and and this flash that blinded him, he is now blinded for three days. And you can imagine if he were to get into the head of this man, that experience was quite profound. I mean, can you imagine you're blinded now, and when you cannot see anything, you're only left with your thoughts, right? And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about this encounter that he had on this Damascus road these entire days that he's blinded. And I can imagine he's dwelling in it and it's sinking deep within his heart, within his mind. And it made a dramatic, powerful impression upon him. We'll talk about some of the things that he wrote later, later in this message. And so Saul... I was thinking about, you know, I recently saw a documentary. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Cries from Syria. Has anyone ever seen that? And it's, you know, it's a couple of years old. And um, it was documenting uh, the crisis, you know, with the refugees. And uh, starting from the, the regime that was in power in Syria and a lot of the oppression uh, the tactics and, and, and the brutality that they used to enforce their rule and to, to quell any uprising. And I tell you, when I watched it, uh, I couldn't sleep. I mean, I watched it fairly late too, and I just could not sleep. Uh, what was so evident was that when there is a ruling power that has the freedom and capacity to inflict violence upon any uprising, 
the true ugliness of human brutality surfaces. And I, I saw that front and center in, in this documentary. This is not a fable or a fiction story. This is what's happening on the other side of the world not too long ago. And as I saw the military uh, the power and, and, and the regime that was sitting uh, in office, so to speak, as they were exerting their, their influence and authority over the people that wanted to have freedom and a voice, saying, why is it like this? And there were, there were freedom movements happening in Egypt and in Libya in this particular season. And so the Syrians, they were catching wind of this breath of freedom. And there was this, this thought amongst the common folks that we too can have a sense of freedom in this country. And when a dictator senses a threat and they have the ability to exert violence over such folks, ugly things happen. And to the point where they were torturing and murdering children. And these, they would show photographs and videos of these things happening. And, and the, the, the military police burning hair and stomping on their heads with their boots. And I, I just could not, like, I, it was one of those things where, like, you're like, like, you don't want to watch it, but you can't stop watching it. You know what I'm talking about? All right, it was one of those things. I didn't want to watch it, and I caught myself to my, my wife. If you ever watch something scary with Jenny, she's like, ah! And she's always like this. And she's all like, eh, right? And uh, I mean, I caught myself kind of doing that. I just couldn't watch anymore. And, but I left it on. And um, as I was thinking about that, I, I was thinking about the passage. You know, next week, we're going to talk about Ananias and the fear that he had to approach Saul after he heard from God. And, and, I, and I get that. Because Saul, when it says in verse 1, he was breathing threats. Saul was a feared man. And if you were a Christian in this day, you either wanted to avoid him or kill him. I can imagine it was one of the two things. And um, with a, a, a person that had the personality, the character, and the, and the ability to inflict such harm upon innocent folks just because he didn't agree with their way of life or what they believed in. I mean, this was a man that people feared, and he was breathing threats and murder. It's not just calling people names. We're talking about your lives were in danger if you got in this man's crosshairs. And I saw Saul as one of those authoritarian, dictator-type, military personnel uh, just inflicting harm on innocent folks. And it, it was not a, a beautiful picture as I, as I imagined it as I was reading again this passage after I watched that documentary. Uh, I'll probably talk a little bit more about that next week, but I want you to understand this person Saul for a second. That he was a a person that you feared. And as he had this authority represented by these documents in his hand to go in any house, to break down any door, to handcuff any individual that belonged to the Christian way. I mean, we're talking about a tremendous amount of authority here, right? And as this man is traveling on this Damascus road, this flash just happens. And uh, you can imagine everyone that's traveling with him, it just caught their attention. And this voice comes out, and it's just calling out to Saul by name. And he's saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And 
Through this message, I, I, I want to talk about what I think would be the two things that Saul would have dwelt on those three days of blindness. That when he was without sight in Damascus, I want to talk about what I think would have been deep in his heart. And in, in my estimation, the first thing that would have been so deep in Saul's heart is that Jesus and the church are one. That Jesus is one with the church. Right? Because when this flash comes and the voice starts booming out, Saul, Saul is like, what is going on? Right? Why are you saying I'm persecuting you? I've never seen you before. I just hear this voice out of nowhere. But the question goes, who are you? And he's assuming that it's some sort of deity, that it's some sort of divine power or voice. He says, who are you, Lord? Or maybe it was a question, who are you, Lord? Right? But he's asking who this is, and the voice comes out again, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Right? And so in that moment, there was an equation. There was a connection between two entities that was a rock-solid connection now in his mind and in his heart. Jesus, the church. Because he was breathing threats against the church. He was adamant. He was intent on going to Damascus and inflicting harm upon every Christian that crossed his path. He knew what he was going to do. And he is stopped mid-path by this light and voice. And it's saying that it is Jesus that he is persecuting. And so in that moment, that connection of me persecuting the people that I don't agree with, they're believing in this, and Jesus is now speaking to me, saying, I am the one you are persecuting. It is not Bob and Mary. It is not Matthew and, and, and Bartholomew that you are persecuting. You are persecuting me, he's saying. And so now, as he goes and as he thinks about people that follow this way, as he thinks about Matthew and Bartholomew and Mary, as he thinks about Thomas and Philip and Peter, as he thinks about these folks now, he is now equating that and connecting that on a deep level to Jesus. Because Jesus said, that's me you're persecuting. And so this connection of Jesus being one with the church, is such an important connection. It comes out in everything that Paul wrote in his letters. He wrote a lot of the New Testament letters, right? And in so many instances and in moments, he wrote about this. I mean, I have a couple of for you, right? Now you are Christ's body, he's writing to the Christians in Corinth, right? You're Christ's body, and you're individually members of it. I mean, can you get any more direct and emphatic than this? Can you see how this statement is connected to that experience on that Damascus road? Because as he was inflicting harm on Christians, Jesus saying, that's me. And so later in his ministry, he is very, very clear saying that the church is the body of Christ. It's everywhere. In Romans he writes, For just as we have many members in one body, and all of the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Continues on, another portion of Corinthians, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
scattered everywhere through the epistles. You'll see this understanding, the body of Christ, we're clothed in Christ, we're one body, Christ's body, His body. Christ is the head of the church, it's everywhere in His writing. You would think that that moment on that Damascus road made an impression on Him based on what He wrote to the churches later in His life. And so if Saul was such an influential person that was converted to Christianity, became a disciple and leader and apostle in the church, what impacted his message? Why was he so influential? Why did his message carry so much weight in the early church? Why did it go to so many continents? Why, through his missionary journeys, were so many dozens, hundreds, and thousands of individuals saved? What was the conviction in this man's heart? What did he experience so that what he said to people carried that much weight? That much power? And I have to believe it starts with that understanding that Jesus is one with the church. That he's one with the church. And if I were to say this, it's an elevated theology of the church. A theology is something that you believe about God. And for Saul that day, his understanding of the church was elevated to a stratosphere that was beyond anything he could have ever imagined. What he thought about the church was a beautiful thing. Because if you think about it, now, I, I come from a, an immigrant family, being my, my dad immigrated to Canada in the 60s. And... Uh, if you've come from an immigrant family, uh, I, I remember this, right? Like, uh, when immigrant communities are forming new in places, uh, at least in the Korean-Canadian community in Toronto in the mid-60s, if anybody would come, there would be a place that you would go automatic. You know where that place was? Yeah, it was the church. You know why you went to the church? It was your connection. It was your social group. It was just a network of support. If you needed to find an apartment to live in, you needed to find a job, you needed to know where the dry cleaners were, where's the nearest market, how do you watch a movie, where do you do this? You found that information in such a social group like the church. And you found that immigrants flocked to the church because it represented a community that was a place where they could speak their native tongue, where they can hear the information of what's happening in that vicinity, in that town. And so a church was definitely a social group, right? What are other things that churches can be? I think a church can be a social justice advocate, right? I mean, a church should definitely be a voice for the marginalized, a hand that seeks to help and lift up the poor, the hurting, the distraught. That the church should be an advocate for social justice. The church should also be a place for education, right? The church should be a place where, where I learn of God, ethics and morality. It should be a place where, where I sharpen my mind. And Christian education should happen in the church. And so the church needs to be a place of, of, of socializing, of fellowship, of community. It needs to be a place of, of advocating for justice. It needs to be a place where we are taught but all of these things, though they are important and should be there in the church, they are not primary. 
that the primary essence of the church is an understanding that it's beyond a community, beyond an advocate, beyond a place of education, but the church is the body of Christ. It is Christ that that elevated idea and understanding of the church is absolutely primary. And when Saul had this deep in his heart, it impacted what he expected from the church, what he wanted the church to be in his life, and what he wanted to do for the church as well. That when you elevate your theology of the church, it impacts our Christian lives. It really influences how we interact with the church, what we expect of it, what we seek to do with it, through it. And that's what's happening here. When Jesus says, I'm the church that you're persecuting. And suddenly in this man's heart and in his mind, he's like, yeah, wow. I get it. What's the second thing that I think he was dwelling on? I mean, because the conversation is not a long-winded one, right? There's not a lot being said here. We've got some flashes of light. We've got a few things being said back and forth. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then the very next thing he says is rise up. Verse 6, right? Rise up. Enter the city. Go, go to Damascus. And it shall be told you what you must do. And in that, I think, what he was dwelling on is that Jesus has a mission for me. And what he understood this day is that God is not idle, that he gives personal missions. Right? That it's not just a general mission that he has. He actually gives specific ones, that he can pinpoint an individual and give that person, him or her, a specific mission, a calling, a duty, a responsibility, something to do. I think that's important as well, right? That when we come into the church, we're not just going into this generic system, but we're going to a place where God sees me as an individual, where He speaks to me as a person, where He can look at me and say, I have a calling for you in your context, in your family, in your space. Because as he's going to Damascus, he's dwelling on these things. Wait, the church that I was persecuting is Jesus. And that this Jesus has an assignment for me. That he has something for me to do and I need to wait to hear that. That's important. That Jesus has a mission for me. It's not just general callings, but he gives specific ones. That God comes into our lives in real ways and in specific moments. You know, if you know anything about uh, different religious thought, deists believe that God created the world and just kind of wound it up like a clock and let it run. Like, I created it, now you're on your own, go for it, type thing. But the Bible speaks a very different picture of God. And it says that not only God created the world and is separate from it, above it and beyond it, but it says that He reaches into it, that He speaks into it, and that He leads His people. And in a couple of blanks that I have for you, it says that the Bible declares that God is intimately involved, that He's acutely aware, and that He's deliberately directing things. 
That when I think about my life, that when you think about your life, you must believe, you can believe that God is involved in an intimate way. That He's aware of the small, detailed things of our lives and that He has deliberate plans for us. That He leads us in specific ways. That when a person grabs a hold of this, that Jesus is one with the church and that Jesus has a mission for me, great things can happen. It happened in Saul's life. I mean, again, I'm, we're talking about a person's conversion that literally changed the world. The world is a different place because Saul believed in Jesus. The world is such a different place because Saul said yes to that call. That something in his life switched in a dramatic way and he stopped persecuting the church and he started advocating for it. The world is a changed place. And so you would think that what changed him, that the thoughts that were swirling around in his mind and his heart, those days in which he was shifting course, you would think that those are important things to dwell on. You would think that the conversation that Jesus had with Saul on that road was an important one. And so what did he glean that day? And I believe it was the two that I brought before you. Jesus being one with the church. That elevated theology of the body of Christ. And knowing for certain that God is involved in my life, that He has a plan and a calling, a mission for me as, a, as an individual. That when a person grabs a hold of this, they begin to incline their ear, their spirit begins to open up in prayer and in meditation and in just thinking about what God has for him or her. And as Paul, ultimately who became, I'm Saul, who ultimately became this Apostle Paul, as he dwelt on these things, not only did his life change, that entire region changed. You know, it says later, we'll read this part of, uh, of this verse in next week's passage. But if you kind of skip down and you see verse 15 of chapter 9, later when Jesus or God speaks to Ananias, uh, this is what he says about Saul. He says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Here you see the scope of his ministry. The scope of his ministry encompassed monarchs and nations and generations. What a, a broad-reaching ministry he had. But the revelations he dwelt on were quite simple. Right at the beginning. And so that elevated theology of the church, the belief that he has a mission for me, may those things dwell with me here and now. And as I allow those to sink deep and, and take root in a good place in my life, maybe I won't have the same ministry as the Apostle Paul, but you can be sure that you will have an influential life for God, His kingdom, and Jesus Christ. And so, as the praise team comes back, I leave you with one final statement. It's written for you there in your outlines. And it's this, you are Christ's body and you're individually members of it. That's the 1 Corinthians 12 passage. That when I allow this to take root in my life, that me, that I am a member, that I am the body of Christ, that I represent Him, that my voice is His voice, that my face is His face, that my hands are His hands, that when I, I, I let this sink, 
and become a reality in my life, powerful things happen. May that be us. Amen.